Good morning. It's great to be with you this morning, and Pastor Keith, there you go, thanks so much for the opportunity. Shannon and I um, have had a very brief time here, but we have had a delightful time. Appreciate the worship team and you all leading us, have you had? That has been wonderful. So it is a delight. Um, I was doing a little bit of look, uh, looking at the history of Keystone Church, and it's so neat because when you go back, you know, starting in, in 1992, six families gathering together saying, what might happen if we, you know, take up God at his word, go out and plant a church, and then you look and you see where it is today, and, and you're like, that's just like God, you know, isn't that just like God? And it's so neat to see how the Lord's used you all, and for that length of time, which is in Christendom these days in America, pretty rare, pretty rare, so very, very grateful for that. I had a professor, he actually was the seminary president uh, in one of the seminaries I attended, and he would tell the stories of the school, and he did it every year on a regular basis, and he would always outline some of the very unique times, kind of 11th hour ways in which God came through. And his recurring theme would be, isn't that just like God? Isn't it just like God? And isn't it just like God, you know, take six families and then and look what has happened, you know, almost 20 years later, it's absolutely fantastic. And I feel in many respects the same way that it's just like God to take this Florida boy and bring him up to Lancaster, Pennsylvania and say, I'd like you to take on a different gig here and help out working through the life of Lancaster Bible College. And it's been an absolute delight. Shannon and I are loving being here. And as he mentioned, we do have uh, six kids. We've married 40 years, got six kids, a lot of grandkids. We call it a good crazy. And it is very much that. We've thoroughly enjoyed our time at LBC, and, and it was neat to see the hands. And for those of you that may not be aware, uh, Lancaster Bible College began in 1933 with Dr. Henry Height. And Dr. Height had uh, a vision of equipping students to understand the Word of God. And 1933, if you're not familiar, was like the worst year of the Great Depression. 25% unemployment wasn't looking particularly good and in the midst of that, he says, I think I'll do that and isn't that just like God to work in the way that he has? And it is indeed. So we're very, very grateful. Um, I am delighted to have the privilege of following Dr. Teter, Peter Tagg, whom you heard uh, a few weeks ago. I love that man. Shannon, I've known Peter and Paulette for about 11, 12 years and then to be in the role that I'm in now. So thanks for the opportunity to be here. I have to tell you that I got a, a phone call from my friend Harley the other day. Uh, that is his name, Harley. And you have to appreciate our friendship to appreciate the phone call. Shannon and I met Harley four years ago when we were on the back roads of North Carolina. And we love small towns and back roads, and we drive them any opportunity that we get. And I'm a car guy, and so when I happen to see a car, I've got to stop. And if that means taking a move across the median or jumping a curb or just backtracking a couple miles. We're going to do it, and my wife puts up with me. She's amazing uh, in that way and many others. But we saw a car, and it was that car that you see on the screen. And so we did the number of the turning around, and I drive in, and there's a guy out in front, young guy, and I said, is it yours? He said, no, it's my dad's. He's in the back. And so I met the dad and um, this soon-to-be friend of mine, Harley, uh, tattooed, uh, motorcycle love and hot rod building metal artist. Jesus loving guy. Really, really neat. And I was attracted by this car because I love old cars. But what really caught my attention is when I looked just to the side, to your right of that, there was a shop. And in that shop, there was this car. It's a night, it may not mean anything to you, but to me, it was like, whoa. 
1936 Chevy Coupe. And it was the last year Chevrolet actually made the interior of their car out of wood. And you open it up, it's got these wood doors and all sheet and metal. And it was so neat. And I asked Harley, I said, would you ever think about selling that? No. No. And Harley was a great guy. We had a uh, lengthy time of talking with him. He has fibromyalgia. Shannon and I prayed with him. We got ready to hop on the road. And before we did, we left with this caveat. That it would be okay if I called Harley about the car sometime in the future. Can't hurt, right? And so we got back to Boca after a little bit of a trip that we had had. And when we got back, I picked up the phone and I called Harley. This was like two weeks later. Harley, you interested in selling that car by any chance right now? Guess what the answer was? No, he wasn't. And I figured that's it. Okay, I can live with that. You know, I get it. Doors closed. No big deal. And I literally, totally forgot about it. Nine Months later, I pulled my car into the church parking lot. I went up to my office and I see my, I've got a light on in my voicemail and I picked it up and I'll give the best Harley representation I can. Hello, Tommy. This is Harley Linville from North Carolina. You know about that 1936 Chevrolet? I'm interested in selling that right now. And whew, I was pretty pumped. You know, at the point in time, Harley didn't want to sell it to any of his friends there in North Carolina because if he sold it to them, he'd regret that he actually sold it. But if he sold it to me, a guy down in Boca, well, he could do that. And my wife is long-suffering. She really is. I saw a t-shirt the other day. It says, every man should love one woman and many cars. I like that. I don't think it's scriptural, but I really like that t-shirt. So I have to work that one out there, Pastor Keith, see if I can... But anyway, Shannon puts up with me, so we borrowed a friend's truck, and we borrowed his trailer, and we put a few coins in our pocket and went up to North Carolina, and we bought that car. And there's my friend Harley. He's still a good friend today, and um, just really, really neat. We, we got it. We went through torrential rains, and the thing leaks like a sieve. And we got it back home to our house in Boca there, and we put a lot of time into the car, and Shannon and I have driven that thing all over the place. Took it 3,000 miles summer before last on what's called the Hot Rod Power Tour. And it's so neat. Now, the thing about Harley is when we left, Harley's the kind of guy that said, Tommy, if I ever find another car that I think's you, I'll call you. That was four years ago. And Harley's a picker. He finds cars. How he does it, I don't know. He's always got a deal. Last week, he called me. Tommy. I got a car. He actually bought a barn field, a barn full of cars. He said, I've got one. I think you're going to really like it. It's a 1941 Lincoln Zephyr. And at that moment, I began to envision what could be. <laughs> you know how that goes, don't you? And I began to think about it and dream about it. I already talked to Shannon about it a couple of times. I just started to think along those lines. And when I think about that, I want to ask you, what captures your heart? What is it that when you hear it or you see it, it's your 1941 Lincoln Zephyr and all of a sudden you start thinking about it? Maybe it's a house. And it's a house you've wanted for a long time and it's not a big house, but you just wanted this house and you're dreaming about it. Maybe it's a little piece of property in the Poconos. Uh, maybe it's, uh, you know, I, I realize folks here are serious hunters. Maybe it's hunting season. You're just, you're just dreaming about hunting season or baseball season, or football season, or maybe it's what one of your kids or your grandkids could be, and, and you can see it, and it just captures your attention. 
What is it for you? I picked up a book not too long ago by a guy by the name of um, John Stott. And John Stott um, died in 2011. And this book was the last book he wrote before he died. He had walked with Jesus for a long time. He was a godly man. And his book, I think, came out like about three years after he died. And you wonder, this is his last book. What's this guy going to say that I need to hear? The book's called The Radical Disciple. And, and I'm thinking, okay, what pearl of wisdom is going to flow from the lips of this old man who's walked with Jesus his entire life that I need to hear? And I opened up that book, and here's what he said. Nothing, nothing, nothing is more important than for mature Christian discipleship than a fresh, clear, true vision of the authentic Jesus. And I believe that. I mean, I, I believe it. I've, I've kind of given my life to it, and I suspect that you do as well. But I know me, and I know that if I'm not careful, despite the fact that nothing's more important than that true, authentic vision of Jesus, I will let lesser visions, like a 1941 Lincoln Zephyr, <laughs> begin to capture my attention and draw me away from that true, clear vision of Jesus. And I think it can happen to any of us. You know, my car may be your house. My car may be your person that you're dreaming of. My car may be any one of a number of things that captures your attention and maybe it's a way of drawing you away from that fresh, clear, true vision of the authentic Jesus. So this morning, this Palm Sunday, what I'd like us to do is take out the Bible and let's go over to John chapter 12 and John's gonna give us a, a clear, true picture of the authentic Jesus in John chapter 12. And I wanna read this and, and as we open up the scripture, my prayer is that we would see what John sees that we'd catch how significant this is, but we'd stop, and after we see it, we ask ourselves, okay, why is this so important? I mean, really, what's the big deal? When I walk out of here, why is this so important? And if having this vision of the authentic Jesus is that important, then Tommy, tell me, how am I supposed to latch on and hang on to that vision during the week? And I want to look at that as we go through. So I'll read the passage of Scripture, John chapter 12, Verses 9 to 19, and as we walk through, I want to highlight a few things that show up in the Word. And then as I do that, I want to share with you just four things that the Lord might use, hopefully, to kind of capture our hearts for this true vision of who Jesus is. We'll begin in verse 9. This is the triumphal entry. Jesus is on his way into Jerusalem. And verse 9 says, When all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him. And also Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, it's Passover. And if uh, in, in that particular day and age, um, Jerusalem, which might normally have 50,000 people, would swell to maybe 100, even 150,000 people. One person said you could get 2.7 million. It was just crazy numbers of people. So much so, the city can't contain them. 
And so people are actually camped out on the side of the mountain and they're getting wind that Jesus is coming their way. Verse 10, then the leading priest decided to kill Lazarus too. Now the leading priest, this is really interesting. The leading priests, um, also called the chief priests, are members of the Sadducee party. It's kind of a religious political party. And what we need to know about the Sadducees is the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees do, but the Sadducees didn't. And here we've got Lazarus, and he's resurrected from the dead. Awkward. That's problematic. So let's take him out as well. Let, let's, let's, let's bypass the evidence. It doesn't really matter. Let's get rid of the evidence. Let's hold on to what we think. And this is what's going on. So verse 12 says, the next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem slept, uh, swept through the city. And a large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. And they shouted, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the king of Israel. Now you look at this and why palm branches? Why in the world, of all the things that were going on, why does John single out that they took palm branches? Why does he do that? as he goes through there, and they're shouting out, praise God, Hosanna, and they're waving these palm branches. We're gonna look at that. Verse 14, Jesus found a young, what's the scripture say? I need a little help. He found a donkey, all right? He found a donkey, and he wrote on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. Shannon and I took the back roads coming over here this morning, and when we did, she said, babe, look, there's some donkeys in that field over there. Now, think about this. Jesus is a king. He's the king, and he's riding in on a donkey? I mean, come on. What's going on? Why is Jesus riding in on a donkey? And then he says, the king is coming. What does he mean by that? Verse 16, we'll pick it up and continue. His disciples didn't understand at the time that this was a fulfillment of prophecy, but after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what happened and realized that these things had been written about him. And many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. In verses 18 and 19. That was the reason. So many went out to meet him because they had heard about this miraculous sign and then the Pharisees said to one another, oh, I mean, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone, the whole world has gone after him. And I love this passage of scripture. I love it for, for Palm Sunday, but I love it for what it teaches us about who Jesus is. Because what John is gonna do is he's going to give us that vision, that clear, true vision of the authentic Jesus. And I wanna come back to those words of that aged follower of Christ, John Stott, before he died, who said, nothing, Tommy, nothing is more important for mature Christian discipleship than a fresh, clear, true vision of the authentic Jesus. So with the time we have, I'd just like to share with you four things about our king. Here's the first one. His character is absolutely trustworthy. His character is trustworthy. Hey, how are you feeling about our political leaders these days? 
you all are pretty, first service is like, I heard the, the, the audible groan and moan. I mean, it was like rumbling in the crowd. Well, it's interesting, if you're a little less than, you know, totally thrilled, 62, just check this recently, 62% of the population of America is dissatisfied with the way Congress is operating. Only 35% are favorable. And you look at it and say, well, is this our day? Actually, this has been going on for a long time. It's the same way in Jesus' day. People weren't crazy about their political leaders. I want to tell you about one of them. His name is Herod the Great. And when we see Herod the Great, we begin to understand a little bit more about what made Jesus so unique. Herod the Great was a bad dude. And when I say a bad dude, I mean like, like he's bad. No, he was bad. Just bad and a dude. He was not a good guy. He, uh, he drowned his brother Aristobulus, who had been a very popular priest, um, high priest. And I suspect that, that Aristobulus maybe got a little bit too much press and Herod the Great didn't like it, so he had him put to death. He executed his wife, Miriam. Think about that. Had her executed. He had three of his own sons killed, two by strangulation. I, I can't comprehend it. And he didn't bat an eye. He had three of them taken out. He ordered the execution of some of the most distinguished citizens of Israel upon his death. You say, why would anyone do that? Because Herod knew that when he died, there wasn't going to be anyone moaning and groaning for him. There would be no, no sense of mourning. And he wanted to ensure that when he died, that there would be mourning in Jerusalem, even though it wasn't for him. So he ordered the execution of some of the leading citizens upon his death. Caesar Augustus, Caesar Augustus said, I'd rather be Herod's hog. I'd rather be Herod's pig than his son. Chances of living were much better in that situation. So Herod had this great power, terrible character, and he didn't bring peace. Jesus, on the other hand, Jesus had greater power. Jesus had all power, perfect character, and Jesus brings peace. And we see the character in Jesus in how he entered into Jerusalem. Look at verse 12 if your scripture's open there. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. The crowd was in a frenzy. They saw Jesus as their Messiah. And they were hoping that Jesus would come riding in on this war horse and that he would take out the Romans and he would establish Jewish rule and throw off their oppressors. But Jesus doesn't do that. Verse 14. Instead, Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it, just as is written, fear not, Daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And you spend some time in the scripture, you know part of what he's doing is he's taking us back to Zechariah, verses 9, Zechariah 9, 9 and 10, which is a prophecy about the coming Messiah. And what Zechariah gives us from the Lord is that the Messiah is going to speak peace to the nations. And so what Jesus is doing here in John chapter 12 is he's actually acting out the messianic vision of Zechariah. He's coming in on a donkey, a, a, a picture of peace to ward off their false sense of what they really wanted, which was someone to come and rule over the Romans. 
And I love that. Jesus is all powerful, but he comes in peace. Now, when I say he comes in peace, Jesus is not a pushover. How many of you read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis? Any? Yeah, a lot of us have. There's this really neat part in The Lion and Witch in the Wardrobe when Lucy is having a conversation with Mr. Beaver and they're talking about Aslan, who's a picture of Christ. And Lucy is seeing how strong Aslan is and she said, well, then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about being safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Jesus isn't safe. And if we think Jesus is going to make our life, Brandon, like you pointed out, and that Francis Chan is going to tell you, Jesus isn't safe. If you think he's going to make your life just the way you want it, probably not going to happen because life is not about me. It's about him and his kingdom. Doesn't mean it's going to be bad, but he's good. And because he's good, we know we can trust him. And you know he's good by how he uses his power. If you got your Bible, look with me over to John chapter 18. I, this is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. John chapter 18, verses 4 to 6. I'll start in verse 3. So Judas, having procured, um, Jesus is in the garden, and Judas and the soldiers are coming at him. Having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went with lanterns and torches and weapons. And we have to be careful as we read the scripture that we do it with a little bit of holy imagination because these folks are making some noise when they're coming through and you can hear the trampling on the ground and the rattling of the sabers and it's loud and they're in charge and they want you to know they've got things under control. Verse four, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and he said to them, who do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. And we can't miss that. Literally, in the original language, it doesn't read I am he. It's it, just two Greek words. Ego, I, me, it means I am and when the soldiers came in, big and bad and all full of power, and Jesus said, who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. Remember any other place in Scripture where we hear, I am? Moses in the burning bush, tell them, I am has sent you. And what Jesus is doing at that moment, the one who spoke the world into existence was releasing just a little bit of all the power he had and it literally knocked them over. And what does Jesus do with that kind of power? Look with me over to John chapter 13. What does Jesus, the all-powerful one, do with his power? John chapter 13, verses 3 to 5. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wash them with a the towel that was wrapped around him. 
Jesus uses his power to serve. I was in a meeting this past week with uh, groups called ACUPS, the Association of Independent Colleges and Universities of Pennsylvania. And so it was a president's meeting for the 92 schools that make up ACUP. And it was a big Zoom call, lots and lots of people on this call. The gentleman who leads ACUP, his name's Tom Foley, does a marvelous, marvelous job. And all of us president, college presidents were sitting on this call. And when we did, uh, Tom Foley was relaying to us what one of his mentors said to him. And the mentor asked him, when you get to a spot where you have power, the question needs to be asked, what did you do with the power? When you get to a spot where you can actually implement change, what did you do with the power? And what we do with power reveals our character. And you know what Jesus did with the power? He healed the centurion's servant. With the power, Jesus went and allowed the woman with the issue of blood to be healed. Jesus, with the power, cleansed the leper. Jesus calmed the sea. Jesus, with the power, laid down his life. And if there's nothing more important for you and me than a true, fresh, clear vision of the authentic Jesus, then one thing that we've got to get really clear in our mind is Jesus' character is absolutely trustworthy. He is all-powerful, and he is good. And he uses his power for the Father's glory and for our good. His character is trustworthy. The second thing I want you to see is his kingdom is coming. Verse 14 says, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Verse 15, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. Now what we need to understand it is that with the king comes the kingdom. And if with the king, Jesus, comes the kingdom, we have to ask ourselves, well, well Tommy, what is the kingdom of God? And the kingdom of God is this. It's the rule and reign, the rule and the reign of Jesus in our lives and in this world. And what we know about the kingdom, it is, is, is what's called already and not yet. It's already and it's not yet in its fullness. I love the way John Piper puts it, uh, talking about the gospel of the kingdom. He says, the gospel of the kingdom is the good news that at the coming of Jesus, God moved into this world in unprecedented ways. He's, he's attacking the enemy, the devil, in new ways. And he's dealt with sin in a new way. And he's gathering people in a new way. And it's so true. I shared with the first service, Shannon and I so love being here. There's just something about being with the people of God and God's got great people everywhere. And there are few things like hanging out with the people of God. It just really isn't. What you have in here, you don't have in many places outside of here. That sense of care, that sense of love, that sense of fellowship, that sense of what goes on. It's just beautiful. This is part of the gospel of the kingdom. He's empowering his representatives in new ways. And in all of this, Jesus is reigning as king. This is the coming and the advancement of his kingdom. And friends, these words are so important. His kingdom is coming. And it is so important because when we get that and it gets deep down in our gut, 
then we begin to live a little differently. We live with an expectancy that although I may not like all the craziness that's going on around here, I know the one who's coming. And he's going to make things right. And because I know that what it does is it just kind of puts a little calmness in my soul. And when I understand the king is coming, it impacts me in the sense that I begin to live in our world with a different kind of understanding. Um, I, I was, had the opportunity in a Zoom. Is anybody else living on Zoom these days? I mean, it was just so much Zoom. But we were Zooming with um, a guy by the name of Daryl Bach, who's a uh, professor at Dallas Theological Seminary out in Fort Worth and he was talking to a number of us Dr. Tag and I were on this conversation together and he was talking to us and a bunch of other folks who do what we do um, about how we interact with culture and he was sharing six key verses that we really needed to get an understanding of in order to effectively engage culture and the one he shared um, maybe right out of the gate was Ephesians 6.12 and Ephesians 6.12 says this for we wrestle not. We wrestle not. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. But against the principalities, against the powers, against the rulers of, of the darkness of this present age. And I needed that reminder because if I'm not careful and I forget that the king is coming, I'll get very upset with people that are pushing things contrary to the kingdom. And I'll begin to look at a political leader. I'll begin to look at a political policy. I'll begin to look at some of the things. And I'll look at that person and I'll begin to see them as the enemy. And they're not. We wrestle not against principality. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. It's not, the, it's not the person of the, of the opposing political party that's my enemy. No, it's the principalities and the powers and the rulers of this dark age. And the king's coming. And he's going to take care of all that. And when I get that, what happens? It just puts a calmness in my soul. And I, can, I cannot look at the people with whom I disagree as my enemies. I can see them as people greatly loved by God. And I'm not an angry Christian. And the world doesn't need many more angry Christians. It needs a lot more people that look like Jesus. And all the people wanted to hang around Jesus, except the Pharisees and the Sadducees. All the other people that were far away from God, they wanted to hang around Jesus. I want to be that kind of person. And I get it when I know his kingdom. It is coming. So chill, Tommy. God's got this. Nothing's catching him off guard. Love people. His character is trustworthy. His kingdom is coming. The third thing is his victory. It's absolutely certain. You know, about those palm branches. Um, palm branches were used in that day to welcome conquering kings. So if you had a palm branch and you're waving it, it's a symbol of victory and you're seeing your conquering king come in. And what's fascinating is that palm branches are only used in two places in the entire New Testament scripture. There are, every gospel writer records, every gospel writer records the triumphal entry of Jesus. Only two places, however, where it's actually palm branches are used. John's gospel and the book of Revelation. Here's what John says. They took palm branches 
and went down the road to meet him. And they shouted, praise God, blessings on the one who comes, comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the king of Israel. And this is, this is they're saying, he's coming. And Revelation gives us the other picture. After this, Revelation 7, 9, I saw a vast crowd too great to count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in the front of the throne and before the lamb and they were clothed in white robes and they held palm branches in their hands to say, Jesus, your victory is certain. You rule and you reign. You know, back on October 2nd, 1770, Benjamin Franklin, we know that name, Benjamin Franklin wrote a letter to Jean-Baptiste Leroy. And in that letter, he said, in this world, nothing can be certain except death and, yeah, we know that, don't we? <laughs> and we know, we know that taxes thing, death and taxes. And I'm gonna add one thing to that. And the certainty of Jesus' coming kingdom and absolute victory. It is a done deal that has not yet happened, but it will. I love it. Abraham Kuyper said, there is not one square inch in the whole realm of human existence over which Jesus Christ, who is Lord over all, does not say, mine, this belongs to me. I grew up in a home where my dad wasn't a believer. I had a great dad. He was a great dad, tough as nails, but a great dad, not a follower of Jesus. So my home didn't always look like Jesus ruled and reigned. <laughs> it was pretty nasty at times. And maybe you get what that's like. I just want to tell you, Jesus may not reign in your home today, but he will. And you may work in a place that's wonderful. You may work in a place that doesn't really resemble the kingdom of God too much. And, and I'll tell you, Jesus may not reign where you work today, but he will. And Jesus may not reign in the places of political power today, but he will. And Jesus, Jesus may not reign in Hollywood today, but he will. And he will reign in Palestine. He reigns over all the earth. His victory is certain. I go back to those words of John Stott. Nothing is more important, friends, for mature Christian discipleship, for me, or for you, than a fresh, clear, true vision of the authentic Jesus. And John gives it to us. Jesus is the King of Kings. His character is trustworthy. His kingdom is coming. His victory is certain. And the last thing I want to share with you is this. His his love for you, is, it's extravagant. Verse 18 says, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And you look at that. Why were people pursuing Jesus? Because Jesus came in pursuit of them. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And I love 
that passage of scripture, particularly for how clear God is to us. You know, I look at the scriptures and and you have this overarching narrative of God's work and I like to use the word kind of um, good news, bad news, good news. The good news is this, you and I are made to be in relationship with God. I mean, the fact that the God who created the entire universe made you and me to know him is mind-boggling. It really is if we stop to think about it. That's the good news. The bad news is like Adam and Eve, every one of us, every one of us, in our thoughts, in our words, and in our actions, we've walked away from Jesus at one time or another. We've walked away from God. You know, God says, go this way. Yeah, I kind of hear you, but I I think I'm going this way. And that's the nature of who we are apart from the work of Christ in our lives. Every one of us, the Bible calls that sin and sin separates us from God. It keeps us from being able to be in relationship with the God for whom we're made. And what's worse is it brings us under God's judgment and under God's wrath and we live in a world where we don't really like to talk about the judgment of God but the bottom line is because we've chosen to walk away from God, every one of us is worthy of God's judgment. The wages of sin is death, the scripture says. Physical death, separation from God, spiritual death, and eternal death. But the free gift of God is life in Christ. And so even though I was separated from God, nothing to offer God, under God's wrath and judgment, God in his goodness came on a rescue mission for me. Jesus took on flesh and bone just like you and me, entered into this world, did what we could not do. He lived a perfect life life before God and then he allowed himself to be hung on the cross and and you can talk to most anyone even people are far away from God they they'll they'll acknowledge oh I heard Jesus died on the cross they don't know why Peter says for Christ died for sins the righteous that's Jesus for the unrighteous that's me why would he do that to bring me to God And he was put to death in the flesh. That's why at the cross, God poured out all his wrath. And I've grown up in the church. I went to a Bible college and I've been a pastor for 40 years and I've told the story so many times that if I'm not careful, I can get very jaded because I know it. And I've got to stop and realize, God did that for me. On the cross, The sins of Tommy Kiedis were poured on Jesus and Jesus endured the wrath of God for me. And for you, friends, that's extravagant love. And he died and he was entombed and three days later he rose again from the dead so that God can say to you, Tommy, here, I'm gonna give you life with me. I'm gonna give you a pardon because Jesus paid your penalty if you put your faith and trust in me. That's extravagant, extravagant love. Jesus is the king of kings. Friends, his character is trustworthy. His kingdom is coming. His victory is certain. His love for you, it's extravagant. So here's what God tells you and me. So, Tommy, Focus on him. Don't let some 1941 Lincoln Zephyr draw your attention. It's not to say it's a bad thing. We're going to probably go look at that car. But don't let that draw your attention from the true, clear, 
picture. Don't think that is anywhere near that. Focus on him. Why? 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, for we all, I love this, for we all with unveiled faces, Paul says, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another by the power of the Spirit. I, I don't get it, but I know it's true. When my vision becomes Jesus, the true, authentic Jesus, and it's his character and his kingdom and his victory and his love begins to consume me, God changes me from the inside out. He does. And this is what Paul's saying. In engaging at him, I change. <laughs> and I become more of a person of peace. Why? Because I'm connected with the one who's the king of peace. I'm connected with the one who, who's got the whole world together and so he has a way of just driving fear out of my life. And as we gaze at him, all of a sudden our priorities begin to shift. And we want to do that men's Bible study on a Wednesday night instead of staring at our screen. Because we realize there are a lot of priorities going on here, but the kingdom is like the priority. It changes our priorities. We become, we become people. And I believe this to my core. When we get a picture of the true authentic Jesus, we become people of humble boldness. We're humble because we really are gripped by the fact that the God of the universe broke into history. And I know me. <laughs> there ain't nothing worth coming and redeem. I know me. And God broke into history to go on a rescue mission for me. If there's anyone ought to be walking through life, humble. But if there's anyone that ought to be walking through life, bold as all get out, it's me. Because the God of the universe saw fit to say, I'm going to take you and make you mine. And folks, this, this sense of humble boldness just out of character, we ought to be the most winsome, loving, kind, and absolutely bold as all get out people. Because we know our God. And we watch what he's done for us. And we're in deep awe and great confidence. And we don't walk around cocky. We walk around humble and we walk around bold and we're willing to take some risks like you all took risks. To say, let's do this. Because the God, of God, the, the God we serve, he's into that kind of stuff. So we're gonna take a risk. Because God's bold. And he makes us bold. So friends, Jesus is the king of kings. The king of kings. His character is trustworthy. His kingdom is coming. <laughs> Ain't no doubt about it. His victory is certain and his love for you. His love for you is extravagant. So focus on him. Don't get taken in by lesser vision. You know what I'm talking about. Those 1941 Lincoln's efforts that are pretty cool. Don't be taken in by lesser vision. Make sure. Nothing is more important for mature Christian discipleship than a fresh, clear, 
true vision of the authentic Jesus. And because Jesus changes us as we focus on him, I want to encourage you this week maybe just to camp out right here in John chapter 12, verses 9 to 19, and just let that wash over your soul this week. And gaze and gaze and gaze and watch what happens as God begins to change us more and more from the inside out into his likeness. He's good like that too. Let's pray. God, what a treat it is for us to be gathered together, the family of God. And Lord, you're so good. You've got great family everywhere. And Father, we thank you for this vision that John gives us, this true, clear, fresh vision of the authentic Jesus. And Lord, may you um, help us to see when we're chasing lesser visions and keeping our eyes locked on you, who's done so much for us through Christ to make us our, your own. Thank you, God, for that. Help us stay riveted, humble and bold, for your honor and glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.